1: Hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to God Forbid. Millennials, those born in the 1980s and 90s, are now approaching, would you believe, middle age. And the world they live in now is unrecognisable from the one they arrived in. If you're a millennial in your 30s or 40s, you're the last to remember a world without the internet the generation to mostly trust institutions, government, religions, the media. We even trusted financial institutions back then. And why not? As millennials left school and university, they entered a workforce enjoying uh, three decades of economic growth that lifted per capita income by two thirds. But then, came the global financial crisis, the global recession, the global pandemic. Today, home ownership may be unreachable, the prospect of retirement unaffordable, and of course, climate making parts of our continent unlivable. So with so many intergenerational promises broken, is it any wonder millennials are asking as they approach middle age, is this all we've come to? Is this all there really is? The question may sound cynical, but luckily we have three Mega Cynics on the panel, all from the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Firstly Laura Davis, who's bringing her show to Melbourne. Laura, welcome to God forbid.
2: Hello, thank you for having me.
1: And also on the program Suren Jayamana.
3: Hello, very good to be here.
1: Even though you have COVID. Yeah, it's good to be anyway, really.
3: Uh with in 2023, you've you know, you get COVID for the third time or second time or whatever, and you're still still kicking. That's a pretty (laughs) you gotta be grateful for that. And Jordan
1: Barr, how about you?
4: Yeah, I'm feeling good. I'm I'm grateful to not have COVID, so there's that. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm sure. Jordan, you um, have called your show Saturn Return. Saturn comes around every twenty nine years. Are you twenty nine thereabouts?
4: I'm twenty nine, and I'm at the tail end of my Saturn Return. It's an astrology thing, which you can take with a grain of salt, absolutely. But I also think well, you it's cannot fun take it like, all
1: if you yeah. don't believe your lives are dictated by the movement of planets.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: So oh, Jordan, on. sorry, tell me about Saturn Return.
4: <laughs> so every uh, it takes Saturn 29.5 years to orbit the sun and your Saturn Return is when Saturn is roughly in the same place that it was when you were born and it's supposed to be your first one because you get a couple, three if you're lucky or unlucky depending how you look at it, but your first one, which is what I'm going through, is supposed to be like leaving your youth behind. It's just your late 20s really. A lot of people go back to uni or they like decide to get married or like buy houses and stuff like that it's supposed to be stepping into what your future is going to be and accepting or rejecting where you've been. Mm.
1: And when I say millennials are approaching middle age, the older of the cohort are. You know, 29 is not approaching middle age, but you are approaching the problems that, you know, people who are in middle age have been facing. Did the 19 year old Jew have much idea about what the 29 year old Jew would have, or own, or not own, or want, or need?
4: No, I think I I always knew that I wanted to try to do performing, so I was a little bit cynical of actually having that much wealth. Um, I didn't think that that was going to happen, but I don't think I realised that I'd be 29 and uh, moving back in with my parents. Uh, That certainly wasn't on the cards. so it's turned out a little bit differently for sure.
1: The great thing about this era we currently live in is you don't have to be a comedian to be poor. You can take any number of professions.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. We love to spread it around. I'm really enjoying the uh, levelling of the playing field.
1: This is Laura Davis, <laughs> tell me about your circumstance.
2: Uh, yeah, I, I was living in London and then I went on a six-week tour in uh, March 2020 and I am still on that tour three years later. The landlord in London packed up my entire flat via Zoom Which is quite confronting to have, you know, some stranger, you know, rummaging through your bedside drawers, holding everything up to the camera, going, do you want these? They've they've got stains. (laughs) I can put them in a box or (laughs) get rid of them. And I live in a car in my parents' driveway and they have three freezers between two people. So, you know, I'm primed for the revolution, really. (laughs)
1: Suren Jayamana, tell me about your experience.
3: Well, I uh, used to be an accountant and then I left that profession to do comedy. And I have to say in 2023 with the advent of like ChatGPT and AI, I'm pretty happy with my choice, I reckon, because I reckon AI is going to replace accountants a little bit sooner than it will replace comedians. And I only say that because I've tried to get it to write comedy for me and it's not that good. Uh, So... If anything, I think my parents were wrong. I shouldn't have gone into accounting. I shouldn't have stayed in accounting. I made the right choice. I'm looking at all my accountant friends who there'll be robots doing their job soon, and I feel very vindicated.
1: <laughs> well, Jordan Barr, do you think there is like a intergenerational angst? Do you feel differently about people older than you, younger than you?
4: Um, yeah, I think that there's uh, – it's kind of like it's, it's quite funny with my parents' generation, they're – Gen X and they are definitely the product of like uh, I guess the last sort of generation of where if you worked hard you could like sort of have more success I guess than your parents before you you know and then it's definitely come to a halt with me and my brothers um and I think that there's this kind of I don't know like when I talk to my parents about the stuff that's going on they they still have this mindset which is great and good for them of like yeah you just have to keep working make connections. print out your CV and call them up a week later <laughs> and see like that kind of thing. Whereas I'm a bit more like disillusioned by it. I know that like the first person reading my CV is probably a robot and I'm not planning as far ahead as they did, I think. Right. Um, I think, and it's not because I'm like, oh my God, I'm nihilistic about like, oh, the world's going to end. I'm not going to do anything, but it just also doesn't make sense. Like I think that logically it doesn't make sense for me to plan further than a year ahead at a time
1: well laura davis the new york times has had a piece on this it's called is this it it has one woman approaching 40 describing her life as this my whole adult life has been one long crisis career crises education debt childcare expenses fraying social fabric wage pressures and above all insecurity do you relate to that as something uniquely your generations or what's your perspective
2: i think Thinking that that is unique is sort of a a real misstep. Really, this is something that has been happening for a very long time and affecting a lot of people, this kind of instability and this insecurity and these struggles, but it is now affecting, you know, white middle-class millennials, (laughs) so we're making as much noise about it as we can, (laughs) and I think it's quite interesting to look at this as a time of change where we could be moving into something that feels like redefining success, redefining what it means to be a functioning member of the community and just that period of adjustment doesn't necessarily have to be a terrible thing. It's probably just going to be uncomfortable.
1: And Soren, Laura talks of this uh, transition but for people who are younger than millennials, younger than you, they don't have to transition from the old to the new because they're just in the new.
3: Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because as Jordan was saying, we're, we're kind of the first generation that's not going to earn more than our parents but that might just be because our parents earned too much like it, and it was, <laughs> it's kind of unsustainable to keep just, you know, part of the whole society that we have set up at the moment is this endless need for growth and it just feels that, you know, it doesn't take a genius to realise that that's not, sustainable and but, but so your
1: generation's partly to blame for that at least in the eyes of those younger than you
3: well yeah well i think uh, millennials are an interesting case where we've hit the jackpot in that we had this wild optimism and then we experienced enough to get through the wild optimism and see the world start to change and shift and and in some respects it, it is falling apart both um environmentally and like the big institutions are uh not what they once were and I think just the age bracket we're in, we're now able to be a bit more discerning rather than just have the wild optimism that people have in their late teens and early 20s. But isn't discerning
1: another way of saying old fuddy-duddy?
3: Yeah, I mean, but if anything, I feel like the Zoomers are a bit old fuddy-duddy themselves because they're... They're so worldly. They know about social issues and they know about racial structures and exactly. they know that gender but, is a construct. And we so, used to
1: get uh, sick of people like you because you'd uh, you know you'd know you'd say .com or you'd uh, go lol <laughs> or you'd you'd you you know you knew what a com- computer mouse was and it didn't involve oh, a little yeah. animal with a tail.
3: I've had to explain the difference between .com and .org to my parents many times. Um, <laughs> But uh, I, and I've i made it up, to be honest, because I don't really know myself. <laughs> but that is one skill that millennials have is we're very good at making stuff up on the fly. And I think the generations that come after us and kind of don't know a pre-internet world, uh, there's this information dump at the moment that it, you, you can almost know too much, I feel, it, to the point where you start to think you don't know anything at all. And at least, at least millennials have the skill of being able to make things up on the fly. And as we have to shape a new world, hopefully that skill will come
1: in to handy, I guess. Well, on RN, it is, God forbid, we are with Jordan Barr, we're with Laura Davis, we're with Seren Jayamana. The Melbourne Comedy Festival is where they star and, God forbid, is where they are now. Much more ahead. <laughs> In the hierarchy of human needs, we need above all else security, safety, food and shelter. But how do you find shelter in a country with property prices like ours? It's now more affordable to live in New York than it is Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane or Adelaide. And the response has been more share houses and more people who live in them. This can be frustrating, no doubt, but you do have to laugh, which is why Roommates the Musical... Opened at the 2017 Melbourne Comedy Festival and is still performed today. The ABC's Stephanie Corsetti takes a look at the idea of living with roommates.
0: Living in a share house was once a rite of passage for struggling students. But musician and comedian Jude Pearl says soaring property prices have made it a necessity for people from all walks of life. It does feel like there was something a bit kind of grungy and cool about living in a share house and that sort of oh, I'm going to follow my dreams and work on my art and live in a share house with a bunch of other artists and now it's like, well, I'm actually a lawyer and I can't afford to buy a place. Jude Pearl has turned her past experience of living in a share house into a musical comedy. Share house, not at all disappointed to be in a share house at 35. It's not sad, it's practical. Off stage, she's admitted she's now renting on her own in Melbourne's southeast, but she can't imagine ever being a homeowner. I have kind of come to peace with the idea that I will not ever be able to afford to buy a house which is which is cool I'm fine with that Many people who watched her show this week also expressed cynicism about the Melbourne housing market
1: Is it an option even I don't know we don't it's not a thing we seem to think about very much
3: or or that we do think about in terms of like
0: ha we will never afford a house uh-huh. <laughs> ever
3: No no not in this market
0: <laughs> No Uh yep yeah. He rents and I live on his couch. (laughs) The generational gap was on display with older people in the audience sharing a different view.
1: People need to have more realistic expectations. You know, my parents' first house and my first house weren't where my house is now or their house was or my grandparents' house. You know, no one starts out in their dream house.
0: I don't think a laugh is going to help make much difference to their their overall
1: life experience.
0: It's not just the difficulty of home ownership causing headaches in capital cities. A survey of more than 2,000 tenants out this week found half are experiencing rental stress, spending at least one-third of their weekly income on rent.
2: It's definitely very expensive rent, um, so, which is why a share house is really the options.
0: Nora Merrills is saving while living at home with her mother and brother.
2: I was going to bid on a place recently, but it was outbid. Well, very sad, but, you know, it happens.
0: But there was hope that change is coming.
2: Back in the days of, like, I know the government did the first home savers account and I had one of those, but I I don't know what else can be done. I just, yeah, hope it's more affordable for people our age eventually.
1: And that's renter Emily Brownstein ending Stephanie Corsetti's report. So, um, Jordan Barr, what do you think of what you've just heard? You used to say that being rich meant having a Porsche. (laughs)
4: <laughs> yes, I thought <laughs> I thought that that was uh, it. It was interesting when you're talking about um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I think I was asked to define what like success means to me and I uh, literally said, um, do you know what, like shelter, um, that's mm. what my idea of success is. Look, I, I uh, am going to be renting for a long time and I kind of, Don't mind that in the sense that I like moving. I like changing my environment a fair bit. There's like so many positives to renting. But I think that that kind of was squashed when recently, like I was told, that the rent increase was happening in the place I was renting with my partner and we had a housemate as well. There was no negotiation and they wouldn't come to the table at all, which is really hard, especially considering like the current, like cost of living crisis and stuff like that. And uh, I think that there's sort of a personal element that's just been sort of aside. Like my partner had to take several months off work to get brain surgery last year. And I sent that in an email to our property manager being like, hey, like, just so you know, like this is the given circumstances would they consider putting off the rental increase for, like, another month so that we can find a place. At the moment, we don't have anywhere to go, blah, blah, blah. And they just said, sorry, Jordan, we can't. And no response. No, how's Kay's doing now? Are they in recovery? So I think that, um, yeah, I quite like the social element of living with roommates and stuff like that. I'm sure that that will expire pretty soon. I reckon I'm on the the edge of that not being fun and quirky anymore. But I think that... it's nice talking about roommates and people rather than tenants and landlords because I think we're taking the sort of human element out of it. Um, I understand that landlords have a rental increase, but I uh, I, uh, – what is it called? Uh, <laughs> an interest rate. Miss scoozy. I'm new here. <coughs> but <laughs> I just think that – I'm sorry that your bad investment is going but your gamble isn't paying off and now I don't have anywhere to live.
1: Yeah, How is your partner going?
4: It's all good. It's it's like full recovery now, which is pretty great. Um, But yeah, I just thought that that was kind of intense to get that sort of robotic response. I was like, have we got AI property
2: managers now? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Laura Davis, you have a similar experience?
2: Oh, absolutely. So I was living uh, and renting privately in London and then, yeah, coming back during the Pandemic, um, when the borders closed, you know, there's been no way to even get a rental property. So, my partner and I have been moving between our parents' places and wherever we can travel for work. And, you know, it's very tough to be able to pack your entire luggage life up in, you know, 23 kilos. It's come with quite a lot of freedom, and you start to really work out what is important and my partner is um, on. and you know intergenerational and community homes are very common anywhere outside of western city living really Uh, so you know we've been enjoying parts of that it's also very hard not to have your own personal space it's very hard not to have a place to work when you work from home work remotely but it does feel like it's a It's a class issue rather than a generational issue. As the gap between rich and poor widens, more and more of the middle class are sort of sucked into this and it is affecting a generation of people in this age group because we haven't had the financial stability ahead of this to sort of be able to withstand it. But it is just sort of a massive overturning of the system as it sort of trickles upwards and, um, yeah, a lot of people are caught in that housing instability at the moment.
1: Wow. Well, Suren, what's your response to comedian and uh, leading economist and philosopher Laura Davis?
3: Well, I uh, I feel a little conflicted at the moment because I have to uh, remember that I'm here to promote a um, comedy show as well, but I also have to be honest and say that at the end of last year my partner and I managed to get into the housing market and we bought a little thing in oh. Coburg, and I feel like I, yeah, I have to be honest, even I'm not the struggling artist that I'd like to portray myself as, but yeah, I, I do feel conflicted because I do, on one hand, think that obviously there are issues with property ownership and the way that the housing market is closing people out of it, but no, I, I feel like the struggle for millennials, particularly middle class millennials. I don't know a whole lot of working-class millennials who have this belief that they'll never own property. Uh, What they tend to do from the people I do know from those backgrounds, what they tend to do is they get jobs and work and don't have this idea that they can pursue more creative careers. And I guess that's sad in a way that the only way to kind of have security is to have to go through this system of working for someone else or getting a trade or whatever. But then, on the other hand, it, I also feel so entitled to be able to come from a background where my parents sent me to a school where I could kind of like have a choice between doing accounting and then pursuing this creative dream. So, yeah, I just—I guess I'm, I'm very privileged. I feel guilty about it, and maybe I shouldn't feel guilty about it, but that's where I am.
4: No, I, but I also like, yeah, I also get surrounded like the the fact that I even pursue comedy is because I come from a background of extremely supportive parents and privilege and went to a school that supported that. So I think that like, yeah, I, I think it's like an interesting thing where I'm in this position where most of my friends are looking to buy houses because that's the environment that I was surrounded by. And also I think it's like that balancing of like, I've definitely made a personal choice. I want to pursue comedy and that meant like taking like financial risks and stuff on shows and things like that I think that the the shift as well as like talking to particularly like older generation comics around us I don't know it doesn't sound like it was as much of a, a risk I still have a, a couple day jobs and I feel like at this point of people's career if they're in the same position they potentially could have quit those jobs but i don't feel like i'm in a position to do that but also yeah i guess i'm also very lucky to have a place to go back to that isn't super traumatic you yeah. know like i can live with my parents and have a good time
1: but we heard during that uh, piece roommates the musical uh, there was a gen x member of the audience who said you know young people need to have realistic expectations no one starts out in their dream house has he got a point? I mean, in Europe, there's no great Australian dream of owning a quarter acre block in Europe. Culturally, in continental Europe, people rent.
4: Yeah, this is true. And Yeah, I think that maybe we were sort of um, fed these expectations so that we would continue in the capitalist machine, blinded by the idea that we would eventually own property and then we would reap the benefits of all the hard work that we went through, I'm not talking about we as in millennials, I'm talking about literally everyone. And then coming through and realising that that's actually not possible. And even if you do, if you do lock out and you buy a home, which is great, then you're going to call ridiculous interest rates at heights and you'll be punished for doing that as well. So it's, uh I guess like the disillusionment comes from the idea that all this hard work, especially for working class families and especially for migrant families, it just doesn't end up the way that you think it would. Yeah, I don't know. I think I went on a bit of a tangent there, but sure.
3: <laughs> I think there's, there's like a, a beautiful moment at the start of the pandemic when a conservative government brought in the most social policy that I've seen in my life, which is the JobKeeper thing. And it, it was mm. like, it was beautiful because I got it and uh, and it helped <laughs> me survive and stay as a comedian instead of go back to accounting. But it was like a nice, I don't one thing that was good about the pandemic was that all of the generational conflict dissolved for a little bit and a lot of the barriers between different groups of society dissolved and we were all kind of like, well, let's, you know, I, I feel like maybe Scott Morrison was coerced into it and bought, his hand was forced but it was it was still nice to be like for a moment, oh, this is – uh we could use economic policy to look after people in need and perhaps if governments acted more like that, then people our age, millennials, wouldn't feel as disenfranchised with the whole system as we do and I think – there's a lot of financial illiteracy around and part of that is just because, as Laura said, the gap's getting bigger and people can see that. And so it just feels harder to have trust in these bigger institutions, which means if you disengage too much, you you just then start to believe these things which close you out from any opportunity, if, if that makes sense. Like Before my partner and I bought a house, I genuinely believed it was not possible for us to ever do it. And then after COVID and, yeah, as I said, we, we were lucky. We got inheritance and then that shifted my belief. But now my living circumstances, are I'm paying pretty much the same as I was paying in rent to – but I lived in Sydney so that's partly why and now I live in Melbourne. But like in terms of my lifestyle, it's very similar. And so to me, I'm like part of it is if it's sad that we believe these things aren't possible because then you never – kind of start laying the groundwork to make it possible and and it, obviously it's different for every person's circumstances but there are probably people who could do it but believe that they can't and so never give it a shot and I wonder whether that starts from the top, the way that the media reports on things and the way that governments react or, or if it's a problem at the individual level, probably a bit of both I guess, I don't know.
1: Hmm. Well, we are all ageing and we're with three ageing comedians trying to get into the property market to varying degrees and to varying levels of success. Millennials with middle age in sight, you may as well laugh. I'm James Carlton. This is God Forbid. Joanne McNally, Irish comedian and writer and actor and, let's say, 30-something years of age, she's going through life as a single, childless woman and says that carries its own unique social and cultural challenges, like the countless weddings she's invited to, serving Italian wine or, as Joanne McNally calls it, the Prosecco Express. (laughs) Well, she's stopped in Australia and she's speaking with Patricia Carvellas.
5: At the time, when I wrote it, I was single, unfertilized, and all my free time was spent <laughs> sipping Prosecco, toasting other people and their milestones and their achievements and what they'd done. And I hadn't done anything, really. I just kind of forgot to get married and have a baby. I was just busy and, like, just didn't prioritise it. And kind of staring down the barrel of barren and the whole thing just got me thinking about what is it to get married? What is it to have a child? Is it the be all and end up? And when you leave it a bit longer, like I did, you get to watch people do it. Because when you're younger and people just get pregnant and married, you don't see it play out. Whereas when you wait, like I'm 40 this year, so I've seen marriages end. Oh, right. You've seen the whole life you cycle. You've the whole life cycle. Well, you see some of the life cycle. Well, yeah, yeah. And there's the, more to come. We know that. There's more to come. But like people talking about how difficult being a mother is, like that's all the chat at the moment is how hard it is whereas in my mother's generation everyone just got knocked up they didn't question it and then they cried into a sponge on the weekend mm. and then they got on with it again on Monday mm. whereas now people don't get on with it anymore they talk about the difficulty of it so I don't get to make ignorant decisions anymore which is sad When you hear them talk about it and it's not something you're going through mm. how does it sound to you? Relentless Relentless <laughs> It does sound relentless, doesn't it? Sounds it sounds relentless. And repetitive? a Very repetitive. Like one of my friends, I was staying in her house for a couple of days and she's a very good friend of mine. And she, one morning she came in, she goes, I'm taking the kids to school. And I was like, all right, Grant, see you later. The next day she came back in, she goes, I'm taking the kids to school. And I was like, again? She goes, yes, Joanne, I do it every morning. And I was like, oh, my God. And she used to make the lunches every day, the whole thing. You get, when you, when you don't do it... How do you adapt to being a mother at 40 when you're so used to doing your own thing the whole time, you know, unless it's like a really deep craving that you have, which I've never had. But obviously the show is a stand up show. It's not a TED talk. So I'm not giving, you know, huge opinions on it. I'm just poking fun at it teasing the idea of motherhood and maybe it's best to just leave it at this stage. Uh, Comedian Chelsea Handler made headlines recently for a daily show video titled A Day in the Life of a Childless Woman. It showed her sleeping in, flying to Paris and doing whatever she wanted. Yeah. It caused outrage though. Yeah. You're child free by choice. Why does this still prompt such a strong backlash? But you know what, right? I saw the Chelsea Handler video and I love her. I think she's amazing. And I was like, she's going to get rinsed for that because I don't like the idea of uh, like the child-free women up against women with kids. I don't like that. Uh, it's just, I think they have a really hard time. I think motherhood looks really difficult. So I wouldn't be rubbing it in their face that I can nap until 1pm and then go on a bottomless brunch. And she's taking the mick as we know. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but I do I do think there's something funny and I know Chelsea Handler does it very well about kind of sticking two fingers up to that traditional idea of family mother marriage, all that stuff, that is kind of, I think, falling out of fashion.
1: I ends Patricia Carvellis with Joanne McNally, the Irish comedian and clearly social commentator. So, Laura, what do you think of what she said?
2: Oh, I mean, yeah, it's um, if you would like to have children and you are willing to, you know, look at it as though you're, you know, educating creating the next generation and you're excited about that then go for it if it's not for you then focus on other things but i think you know it's just another one of those expectations that is upended you have the social and political element where you know it is hard to consider having a child if your landlord is kicking you out and making you move every 6 months and a lot of landlords don't accept families or you know uh, young babies at all and you know, education and childcare are all increasingly destabilised as well as the health implications that we've all seen through the pandemic. So there's a lot of reasons not to, and then there's a lot of reasons to have a kid. And it's just one of those things where it's coming down more to personal choice rather than just going with the grain of expectation.
1: Joanne McNally was saying she didn't like the idea of um, you know childless women and women with kids being lined up against each other. It's far more complex than that.
2: Oh yeah, no, they're absolutely trying to pass the buck on. You know where the target of the dissatisfaction should be is no point looking over your shoulder and seeing what you know other people are doing, comparing yourselves to them. If you know you have a problem, uh, then you know it's yours to deal with. I don't look at women with children and. Go, oh no, that's not for me. I would love to have a kid and at the same time that I feel a lot of trepidation in doing that because of the way that we are living at the moment. And I think it's about challenging those sort of overarching values in society and the way that we approach each other, you know, on that individual level, which trickles out. <laughs> towards a wider society but you know pinning the blame you can look at different governments you know what they've done um you can you know look at things that have been eroded but at the same time you know it's definitely not something that you you know pin on your neighbor
1: and jordan Barr, what do you say about this weight of conflicting expectations
2: I think it's just it's a
4: personal choice and I think that more people once we sort of realize that there's other things that you can do if you don't want to have children, also seeing other generations of women aging without children and being fine and not being these like lonely, like haggard witches, although that would be fun too, I think, that we imagined growing up. It's not all a roll dial novel, it's like actually can be a good life. I think that seeing that has just been like, Oh, I don't maybe I don't want to have children. And when I think like personally, like I don't want kids, which I think a lot of people breeze over because I'm 29 and they're like, oh, you'll change your mind. You go crazy at 33. Haven't they told you? <laughs> but I feel like um, people don't really take that uh, super seriously. But I just like, I look at my life. I think about the things that I enjoy and having a child. And I like, this is going to sound dramatic. I, I love kids. I was a nanny for years, but uh, thinking about the things that I enjoy, the stuff that I want to do, if I had a kid, it would ruin my life. It <laughs> sounds really dramatic, but it's just like, well, that's not it. And I think um, there's a comedian, Nikki Britton, who has a really good bit about people saying that once you have a kid, you've like you've never experienced love like that, and it's like. Grow up, you don't have love for anyone else in your life. That you've actually revealed yourself to be a very selfish person. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Serenja Amana, there is this phenomenon now where people decide in your generation, they said, Oh, I don't know if I should have kids, or if I do have kids, maybe I shouldn't have more than one or two, so as not to contribute to the population too much. That's a rather new way of looking at things.
3: I have to remind people I'm a comedian occasionally because the, the tone of the conversation is very serious, and I I've got to, it's, as I said, I feel conflicted. Do I give tell you what I really think or do I try to be funny? And the, the, what I really think is it is stressful because we're seeing bushfires, we're seeing floods. It's, it's almost of biblical proportions what's environmentally going wrong at the moment and it feels potentially selfish or irresponsible to bring a child into that world. But, at the same time, my brother recently had two young. He had two babies. Uh, obviously, they were young when he had them, and I've spent time with them. And there's a certain joy that they have, which is kind of infectious. And it's like it's very easy for us to have built up all of this baggage over 35 plus years of life, or 29 if you're Jordan, or whatever, however long you've been here, and to forget that you know sometimes the joy is just in the simple moments. And so. I've really appreciated seeing that from my nephews. Like he can – Tom will stand in a puddle for an hour and he's fixated with the beauty of the puddle and he, he's not looking at that water thinking about floods. Uh, he's just standing in a puddle jumping in up and down. in it. And I think maybe there there is something refreshing about that childlike perspective that the more you can find that in your life when you're not actually in the middle of a crisis and disaster, hopefully the more – perspective you can give to those crises and disasters and and see that, you know, I guess one thing that is a historical fact that cannot be unproven is that life just keeps going and whether or not Jordan chooses to have a child in the grand scheme of things, it should just be a choice for Jordan and it's weird that society has these expectations we place on people to be carrying the mantle forward because I think regardless, the mantle will just keep being passed on. And there's also no reason that that choice is the choice that we should always stick to, you know.
1: You mean abandon the kids if you turn out not liking them? Mm. Well, always
3: an one, I, I pr- probably once you've had the kid, the choice has become a little bit more limited, I'd say. But um, as, a, as an uncle, I can abandon the kid uh, <laughs> and, and I, I sort of do, you know. I'll spend a weekend with him and then I, I leave him in a house. Uh, it's his house, but I, that's where I live.
1: Mum, Uncle Shiren's going again. He is like that. I think
3: um, before I get over there, his mum gets him so excited for the fact that I'm visiting. And I I feel like that that's part of it, but that she should also tell him that I'm going to leave at
1: some point. Well, Jordan <laughs> Barr, we're talking about bringing children into a – a world so uncertain and uh, so uh, damaged by climate change and turmoil. But then, of course, there's the argument from uh, Malcolm Turnbull, there's never been a better time to be alive. No, more exciting time, I think he said, or a more prosperous time in his case.
0: Oh,
4: certainly. I mean, it's exciting. I don't know what's going to happen next. Your cortisol levels are all over the place. But I think we've got to create social structures that make having children accessible because at the moment everyone can do it, but it's not necessarily something that everyone can sustain. Um, And I think that if we, you know, had free kindergarten Uh, free healthcare free dental and stuff like that then it would be so much more of a joy and we would be talking about that more than we would be talking about how grim it is having children in the world and also like I feel like some of my friends who are deciding to have kids are doing it out of like a radical act of hope which I I think is um sounds very like uh American who's that woman who's always talking about being vulnerable Bren someone anyway but that's kind of Brené Brown thank you um I think that that's fun as well and and nice and, like, also it's easy to be nihilistic but I think you got to have hope and I think that hope is the foundation of revolution too. So having children is potentially the most revolutionary thing Mm. that you can do as well.
1: Well, amazing you say that because we'll be looking at hope exactly up next on RN It Is God Forbid. The comedian Lizzie Hu says statistically she's at life's half-time period. Time, she says, to run out onto the field with oranges and a mid-game pep talk. And this talk is inevitably about the expectations of adult life versus the reality. And once you've had that talk, Liz Who says she has another question to answer. Should you live each day as if it's your last or, as statistics suggest, live each day as if you've got 16,000 more to go if you're exactly middle age? Lizzie Who is speaking with, God forbid, producer Sam Carmody about optimism and belief when approaching middle age.
6: I think I'm happier now, personally, than 10 years ago, like turning 30. I think I was so confused back then and sort of in this, like, limbo of, like, oh, should I be doing this? Should I be doing that too? Whatever. And now I'm just like, oh, I'm just going to do my own thing. Whatever. And I think a lot of millennials are probably like that now. They feel they can do their own thing and they don't have to, you know, stick to the rules. But I also feel like when I turned 30, I felt like I was running out of time. mm But now I'm turning 40, I'm like, oh, God, I've got so much time left. (laughs) Like, it's the reverse. It's like, oh, God, I could live for another 50 years.
3: (laughs) I can really relate Um, to that feeling of running out of time. In terms of running out of time to achieve some kind of success that you thought you needed to achieve. I mean, do you think that's maybe because your ideas of what a successful meaningful life have altered in that time?
6: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And look, I changed careers in my 30s as well, which was a big thing for me. So I sort of like showed myself, oh, you can change. And, you know, in another 20 years, I might change careers again. Like you don't have to do one thing for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. You can find something you're really good at or something you really like at any time in your life. When my dad retired, he started playing guitar and ukulele, and he's, like, obsessed with that now. And I remember thinking, oh, he didn't find his obsession or passion until he was, like, 70. That's something you learn as you get older, maybe. So I think there's definitely more people feeling comfortable in going their own way and sort of doing their own thing. There's definitely discomforts, obviously, like, you know, buying a house and environmental concerns and that sort of thing is, like, so scary. But, like, in my mind, I think, oh, I don't feel sorry for me. I feel sorry for, like, kids. Mm. (laughs) Like, what future will they have? I'm not sure.
3: You were raised in a household with religion. Where are you at now, I guess, with how you make meaning about the present and into the future?
6: Well, I definitely appreciate my Catholic upbringing I'm definitely not I wouldn't call myself Catholic anymore definitely a lapsed one but I probably steal from dad's Buddhist way of life because he's very much you know it is what it is you can't change it you know just go with the flow kind of person Mm. you know I read a lot of self-help and so much of self-help is just borrowed bits of different religions stuck together So I think people are, like, spiritual Mm -hmm. and um, look for something, but it's maybe not necessarily organized religion.
3: What I get a sense there is that the optimism that you might have, or hopefulness, it's not Mm -hmm. a nihilistic kind of, oh, I'll I'll just enjoy myself while the ship's sinking. There seems to be something more meaningful at work.
6: Yeah. I don't know. I think, like, I'm definitely fearful of what could happen down the track, like, more pandemics and potential war and and that sort of thing but I try not to get hung up on it and just just, oh this sounds so lame but like live in the now (laughs) but yeah I just go with what's in front of me I think in the last few years like I'm not surprised by anything anymore does that make sense you know 10 years ago, if you told me I was going to be a comedian, I would have been like, yeah, whatever. Like I didn't even really see that for myself 10 years ago. So I feel like a lot can change and can change very quickly. And you just don't know if or when things will happen. So you just kind of have to just go with what's in front of you.
1: God forbid, producer Sam Carmody. She's at the Melbourne Comedy Festival this year, as is Suren Jayamana. So Suren, what do you think about that, living in the moment, no longer surprised about what life has to offer?
3: Yeah, I have a very similar background, I guess, to Lizzie. I went from a professional accounting gig into uh, the creative arts and then I um, also was raised Catholic and and more recently have gravitated towards like Eastern kind of philosophy. I, I agree 100% with what Lizzie's saying and I struggle with it a little bit because sometimes what I'm telling my friends and stuff about this kind of changed view of the world that I've developed over the last five years in particular, I also have to check myself because I do come from a privileged background. But despite that, I, I feel like the advice still holds that um a lot of the time, a lot of the things that we get scared about, we're we're picturing the very worst, and we're, we're jumping to the end of the show and working back from there. And, and the more I have emphasis, I've put on meditation and spirituality, and trying to be just present and trying to just handle what's in front of me in the moment. It's taken away a lot of stress, and things have gotten easier. And through that, things have sort of come to me a little bit easier. So, I yeah, I totally agree with everything Liz is saying. I won't go as far as saying that I believe in manifesting. But if I if I did, I think I'd be too embarrassed to admit that I believe in manifesting, <laughs> and so I'd I'd like manifest some uh, hippie and a bush stuff to tell me that manifesting is real, just so that I'd stop believing in it. But that I I do think there's a lot of merit to being here and present and trying to just tackle things one thing at a time.
1: You have mellowed and you have changed as you age. Change as you age often involves becoming from left-wing to a bit more right-wing, a progressive, a little more conservative. And when that happens, it means we, you know, can become in this current culture victims of cancel culture or or identity politics. Have I got a point here, Seren?
3: Well, uh, cancel culture and and identity politics are sort of something that I try to think even less about now that I am trying to be present in the moment because I feel like uh, if I listen to both sides, I can usually be convinced by both sides because there probably is some truth on on either end and I think a lot of the time what happens at the moment is no one is really listening to what the other person is saying and often, particularly with the generational gap conversation we started with, the housing crisis, etc., sometimes I think that the boomers have just got a different language that they're using to millennials. But often we're saying the same thing and not hearing the other person because we're coming from a very preconceived idea. One thing I like to think about often is that if I was able to buy the house that my dad did in the early 90s for as much as he paid, I would have done it. I wouldn't have passed up on it just because I would think 20, 30 years later, there'll be millennials who won't be able to achieve that and you know what I mean I like we we often like to point the finger at boomers and be like you guys had it so easy you paid a carrot and a and a thimble of water for a house and it's so easy that you did that but I mean if someone had offered me a house for that much of course I would have done it I right? I feel like we're so similar to uh, boomers in the choices we would make it's just the circumstances that are different and so boomers oftentimes are set in their ways and they say things without necessarily using the language that we uh, use. But I had a lady, I won't say who it was, but she asked me, she said, what is a trans? And um, and that was, to my ears, I was like, you, that, you cannot say that. That's hor- hor- You can't just talk about someone who's a person in such a sort of objectifying way. But I just understand that she doesn't know the language and she kind of is she's trying to understand, but she doesn't know how to use the terms appropriately. And I guess sometimes cancel culture could a slap on the wrist could make her more reactive rather than trying to. I don't know if that's a good example, actually, but um, but yeah.
1: I think it is. What do you say, Jordan Barr? It can be tricky. You know, uh, the well-meaning older generation uh, stumbles on language, which is changing so rapidly and ends up becoming a stereotype figure of that old generation.
4: Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I think with especially with like my uh, grandparents, like when I hang out with them, we have like so much more in common than we don't, you know, and I think it's so much less, especially when it comes to – um Things like uh, the stuff that we were talking about earlier in the show about like owning land and stuff like that, I think it's way more of a class divide than it is a generational divide. I think it's kind of become this like product of certain privately owned like media outlets to to push this idea that we all hate boomers vibes.
1: Um, Sure, but I'm sure when you're having a lovely day with your grandparents mm, and, you know, everything's going swimmingly in an environment of, of love, food and support... They still say things where if you go, oh, my God, if that was said outside this dining room, they'd be hell to pay.
4: Oh, absolutely. They've said it about me to my face. Look, I think um, – I think. but the other on the other end of it, like I was sitting there with my uh, baby cousin and we were reading The Very Hungry Caterpillar and my nan out of nowhere across the room goes, oh, they're trying to take that book away next. And I was like, what? (laughs) And then she's like, yep, first it was Mr. Potato Head. And I was like, why? And she didn't know. She couldn't tell me why people were angry at it. And I also was like, I don't think anyone is. I think that that is some sort of of red herring that's been thrown out when, like, actually...
1: Political correctness gone mad.
4: Yeah, it's like the issue is not nobody cares about the caterpillar. Nobody cares about Mr. Potato Head's gender. He's a potato. He's not sentient. (laughs) And it's like what they think we want, or I say we in quotation marks, I'm, uh, uh, I don't really know what I mean by that, but I think that like the idea that my nan and pop have of what cancel culture is isn't actually what people are talking about. I think that people forget that cancel culture or being cancelled started on black Twitter to encourage people not to use certain products from companies that had been not paying uh, black workers or not going to certain areas that were previously owned or were a plantation or something like that. So I think that mm. the whole thing has been... And economic
1: boycotts have been around... Yes. ...in our generation, our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation. It's just rebadged as cancel culture, yeah?
4: Exactly. I think it's all been blown out of proportion. We don't actually know what it is. And I think that the hungry caterpillar is fine. Let him eat. Mm,
1: Well, I must find out what Laura Davis thinks about the hungry caterpillar. Uh,
2: I mean, it's one of these things where, you know, I don't think anybody is coming out to cancel my nan. You know, the PC police aren't coming for that. And it's, you know, these, these kind of things are all divisions and distractions. They're trying to put your attention on to literally anything they can, including the very hungry caterpillar. <laughs> and it's one of those things where, yeah, if people look at a text and they go, hmm, maybe this isn't relevant anymore, that's just change. It's just growth. It's the same way that there are a whole lot of texts that I was never taught at school because they were not appropriate for the age that we had arrived in. And look, if it takes out the hungry caterpillar, that's just the nature of change. You know, it's just the way it moves. It's probably not, you know, a, a strategic thing where people are out there, you know, finding their next target. It's just people looking at things and reappraising them with what we've learned and seeing if they're still relevant. You know, it's just a big Mari Kondo <laughs> that you know, we do culturally. And it's a very natural human thing to sort of evolve and change. And I find it quite interesting that people look at that as sort of a new thing that's come into play, sort of some sort of brand new idea that we've had that, you know, that we would move on from certain ideas where, you know, the entire history of humanity has just been a, a gradual process of change and development.
1: I suppose even the Bible's had countless iterations.
2: Yeah, well, they didn't make me read that. Whereas, you know, they would have, You know, 100 years ago, that would have been at least on the bedside table, but you know.
1: Well, then you'll be at a disadvantage during the Wits End quiz if it's biblical or scriptural in nature, which it may not be. We'll find out though. Time for Wits End.
0: Wits End.
1: Yes, it's wit's End, the God forbid quiz, a millennial edition, because we have millennials on the show. You see, as always, uh, we begin with the buzzers. Jordan Barr, test yours. There is no God. There's no gods. <laughs> okay. No now Suren Jayamana, test your buzzer.
5: Worshiping the devil.
1: Worshiping the devil. Now Laura Davis, yours is the final buzzer. Tested. Oh my God. Buzzers are working. First question: Over the last two or three years, during the pandemic, workers in their millions around the world have voluntarily resigned from their jobs employees in their 30s and millennials are the most likely to quit gen Z in their 20s the second most likely what's the name of this economic phenomenon
3: worshiping the devil it's uh i think the um the first wave of the uh, apocalypse
1: <laughs> close it's called the great resignation the big quit or the great reshuffle our next question. What's the name of the blockbuster 1993 film? All millennials attended, everyone. It's in the census. The character, played by Jeff Goldblum, has the famous quote God creates dinosaurs, God destroys dinosaurs, God creates man. Man destroys God, man creates dinosaurs. Oh my God.
2: Oh, but you left out the best bit, which What's is that? when Laura Dern comes in and says, dinosaurs eat man, woman inherits the earth. That's the best bit of writing
1: in the film. So, yeah, Jurassic Park, there you go. Women takes over from man via dinosaur. Um, Well, final question. Last week a Demographia report came out saying which city on earth is the most unaffordable? Not Sydney. It's not even Australian.
3: There is no God!
4: Oh, is it like Wellington?
1: No. (laughs) No. <laughs> Where'd you come up with that?
2: For? I would have gone Wellington. I
3: just thought really? it was next door. Worshipping the devil. Is it like uh, London or York or something like that?
1: Even more expensive, well, Hong Kong.
4: Hong Kong, get out!
1: Yes, retained its position as the world's least affordable city for the 13th consecutive year, with the average house prices nearly 19 times the average annual wage. If
4: only Hong Kong had saved, you know, no more avocado on toast, they would have been fine. Smashed avocado
1: is banned in Hong Kong. (laughs) Look, on that note, we have finished the end of the quiz. We'll call it a a draw. We've reached the end of God forbid as well with our three ageing millennials, but I've had a great deal of fun with them. Jordan Barr, thank you for being on the show. Uh,
4: Thank you for having me.
1: And Suren Jayamana, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Laura Davis, pleasure's been mine. Thanks so much. All three will be at the Melbourne Comedy Festival over the course of April. Uh, With that, we have reached the end of God Forbid. You can follow the podcast on the ABC Listen app, email me at godforbid at abc.net.au. I'm James Carlton. Until next week, remember to be good. This has been God Forbid.